Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like James said, my name's Taylor. If I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, I would love to, so come say hi after, uh, after the service here. Um, I am one of our pastors here, newer to our pastoral team, and we are beginning a new series uh, this week for the next couple months that we're calling Ecclesia, which is the Greek word, the original language of the New Testament, most of the New Testament, um, for the church that we translate as the church, as we'll see in a little bit. It's got a layered meaning that helps us understand what exactly the church is. But we're teasing out this question for the next couple of months. What does it mean for us, us, to be the church. And maybe more specifically for our time and our place and our church, what does it mean for us to be the church here in the South Bay? What does it mean for us to be all that Jesus intends us to be as the presence of his people here in the South Bay of Los Angeles? And so we're gonna be teasing out that question uh, more or less for the next couple of months as we look through the letters of the New Testament. Uh, we're gonna spend most of our time in this series looking at these various letters of the New Testament that are written to these specific ch church communities in the early church around the Roman world, to these specific church communities and asking us what God has to say to us through these letters for our church community. So we're going to be beginning this all off in Matthew chapter 16. You got your own Bible uh, or device you want to pull that up on. You can read along with me or you can listen as I read. I'm going to read our text. I'm going to pray and then we're going to see what God has to say to us here this morning. So would you guys, um, if you pull it up, want to read along with me um, to yourself, lest you be a crazy person muttering to yourself as I read aloud, or you can just listen. Here we go. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. This is an episode from the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and here is what the text says, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, uh, and they said some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you, Simon, are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's our passage, the word of God for us this morning, written by a human author in his own language and style and context, but inspired by the spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray and ask that God would speak to us right now. Would you guys pray with me? that God would speak. God, we love you, and uh, we're grateful for your grace. We're gathered here this morning as your people and those joining us to explore life with Jesus. We're gathered because we want to hear from you. God, we want to love each other in Jesus's name where we experience your presence, and we want to hear from you from your word, and we pray that you would speak. We gather to worship you and to honor you. We gather because of Jesus. And we pray, God, that we would see who Jesus is and therefore who we're to be this morning. God, I pray, as we always do, that you would give us not just information for our heads, but transformation in our hearts, that we become the kind of men and women that you always meant us to be. And I thank you that that's possible, even though we have our faults and failures in our own ways, have lived as if we were your enemies. God, it's possible because of the grace of Jesus. There's literally nothing that any of us could do if we were in Christ that would ever make you love us less. So we praise you for that, God, and we ask that you'd speak. 
pray that you would teach us what it means to be the church. Come, Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, what is the most countercultural thing about the way of Jesus? What is the most revolutionary, countercultural aspect of life with Jesus? I mean, I guess that question kind of depends on which culture you're talking about to be a counterculture to, but there are some worthy contenders, right? We could name off the list of the number one things that come to our mind when we think of the most countercultural aspect of life with Jesus, and Christian or not, there's stuff that's coming to our mind right now. This goes against the grain of everything that the world tells me ought to be true, and even maybe that I feel in myself ought to be true. There's a countercultural reality to life with Jesus, but of all the contenders that we can name and list off, and the list would probably be long, I think one of the top, uh, the one, uh, near the top of the list for the most countercultural things of, uh, of the way of Jesus would be the community of the church. One of, when faithfully lived out, one of the most countercultural, revolutionary aspects of life with Jesus in any culture and in any time is the community of the church. This is true today, as we'll dive into over the course of this series in a life-giving, redemptive way. It was true in the earliest days of the church as well. The Roman world into which the church was born had no categories for what this new spiritual family, the, the, the family of followers of Jesus, the church, they had no categories for what this community was and how this community lived. It flabbergasted them. There was one early writer uh, writing in the ancient world, who's writing about how the, the community of the early church blew all the categories of the Roman world out of the water and made no sense whatsoever. And he, he wrote about it in a letter saying this about the early church. Describing their way of life, he said, as citizens, as citizens of the empire, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land to them, it's every, any place they find themselves, is as if it were their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do others, they beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They share a life together, but they're not sleeping around with each other. They are in the flesh, but they do not li live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws in their lives. They love all and are persecuted by all. They're poor, and yet they make many rich. They're completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. Here's an ancient writer trying to make sense of this new and, and, and countercultural way of doing life in the community of these people that follow Jesus, who call themselves the church, lived faithfully. The community of the new spiritual family, the church of Jesus, is one of the most redemptive, life-giving, countercultural aspects of life with Jesus. And yet, many of us have not experienced the church in this way at all. Many of us have had hurtful experiences. We've been wounded in church community. Many of us struggle to see its relevance. I don't, I don't get why it's so important. I've got my relationship with God. It's great for me to kind of come in and out to get some encouragement, but I don't see why it's such a big deal. This is not a new feeling, unfortunately. It's not a new experience in the course of history. If you've ever taken a European art class or uh, an, an art history class of any kind, or European history class, you might be familiar with Vincent van Gogh's paintings, The Starry Night. Vincent van Gogh was 
uh, a painter kind of renowned for his use of light. And in The Starry Night, it's this scene, um, for those of you maybe that aren't familiar, it's this scene looking out over a town from kind of a high point. And, and, uh, and from the perspective of, of Van Gogh, the painter, everything is the swirl of light, the night sky as he paints the stars or these swirls, these beautiful swirls of light. And even in the town, the use of light is beautiful as the buildings are lit up from the inside. And, and, and the, one of the things that art critics will tell us about this painting in particular is it's, it is a, a, a masterpiece of the use of light in a painting. But one of the things that makes the Starry Night especially interesting is not just its use of light, but its use of darkness. You see, everything in this night scene is lit up in the Starry Night, the sky, the buildings in the town, except right in the middle, there's a shadow. In the middle of the town is the church. And while every other building in the town is lit up, the church in the middle of the building is dark. See, for Vincent van Gogh, he had this incredible sense of the presence of God, and yet he looked at the church and he saw none of it. Here's what he wrote in a letter to a friend. He said, I have a tremendous need for, shall I say the word, for religion. And so I go outside at night to paint the stars. For Van Gogh, he had a deep sense of the need of the presence of God, and yet he didn't find it in the church, he found it elsewhere. And maybe you can relate. And so given the wounding experiences in or the deep ambivalence toward the church that many of us have had on the one hand, and the redemptive, revolutionary spiritual family that the church can be and has been in many faithful communities around the world on the other, let's ask the obvious question. How can we, the River Church, be all that Jesus intends his church to be right here in the South Bay of Los Angeles? It's a big question, and we're spending the next couple of months teasing out this question, like I said, as we look at these New Testament letters to various local church families in the early church, but it all begins by embracing the simple truth that is at the heartbeat of the Scripture's teaching on the church. It's this, that the church is not just a place where and it's not just programs that. The church is a people who. The church is not just a place where. It's not just 52 Sunday events a year. It's not just programs that. It's not just a strategic plan and, and a bunch of activities that we do together, although those things are great and important. But the church is a people who. A people who embrace the life of Jesus together a people who have been loved by God together and therefore live in the way of Jesus together. And our text in Matthew 16 is the first time that we see this word church in the New Testament. And it's here that Jesus shows us what this, in this just embryonic phases, what the church is. We're going to follow this line of thinking in this text to begin building a foundation that's going to set us up for the rest of the series. But it's here that Jesus first uses this word church, this word ekklesia, the, the founding word of our series here. And, and the, the Greek word ekklesia that we translate as church had a contextual meaning that wasn't just church as we know it today. See, in the ancient world, particularly in the Greek city-state, they had what they called an ecclesia, which was an assembly of the citizens of the city. Now, that was, it was a very exclusive, uh, exclusive assembly of citizens. To be a citizen, you had to be a person of high status in most cases and a man in almost every case. And so it was an exclusive assembly, but it was an assembly of citizens. 
And in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, the word ekklesia was used to describe the gathering of God's people, especially when they gathered together to kind of, kind of solidify their covenant with God. And so here Jesus uses this term to describe what his people will be and everything about this word, its history, its context, the way that Jesus used it here and the way that the writers of the New Testament use it elsewhere, everything about it indicates that he's talking about a people. The gathering of people and not just the gathering itself, but the people themselves. The church is not just a place where, and it's not just programs that, the church is a people who but a people who what? And this text shows us the church is a people who, a people who confess a true hope, a people who live from a secure identity, a people who live as a safe community, and a people who live for an unsafe mission. And that, as we'll fly through, will be how we spend the rest of our morning here in this text, looking at the church as a people who confess a true hope, who live from a secure identity, who live as a safe community, and who live for an unsafe mission, all together. And so we'll begin, as the text begins, by looking at we are a people, the church is a people who confess a true hope. The beginning of this passage finds Jesus asking the disciples, who do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is a, is a term uh, ripped from the, the writers of the Old Testament that Jesus appropriates to himself as the promised one that fulfills all the promises of God to rescue his people in a, in a Messiah, a, an anointed one, the one who would come and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves to rescue his people from the brokenness of this world. And he, he, he says, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they've got all these answers. Eh, it's maybe John the Baptist or maybe... Maybe you're the kind of the incarnate, reincarnation of John the Baptist, or maybe you're a resurrected one of the prophets, or maybe you're Elijah. They go, all, all these possibilities, things that are hearsay on the streets about who the Son of Man is. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, picking up in verse 15, or, uh, who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the Son of the living God. Now, there's a little bit of um, theological controversy, or just this is a, a passage that's debated a lot. We're not going to get into um, some of the nuances of, of where those debates have gone um, for our purposes this morning. And so all six of you Bible nerds that are like, what's he going to say about the, the wordplay between Petros and Petros and Peter? Anyway, you don't know what I'm talking about for most of you, so I'm just wasting your time. But for all six of you, Yes, I'm aware of those things. They're awesome. They're interesting. We're going to focus in on specifically what this tells us about the church for us in our day and our time. But, there, but suffice to say, there, there is some interesting stuff going on here, specifically on determining what the rock that Jesus is going to build the church on is. And like I said, there's some wordplay. Jesus tells Simon that his name is now Peter, which in Greek is Petros, O-S, and then he says, and on this rock, which is Petras, A-S at the end, on this rock, I will build my church. And so there's this wordplay. And so the, the, the question is, what is the rock? And what relationship does it have to Peter versus Peter's confession that he's the Christ versus just Jesus himself? And those are kind of the three options. It's the rock is either Peter, it's Jesus, or Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ in some kind of combination or in one of those three options. We're not going to dive into that. What I'm going to say is I do think it has something to do with Peter because Jesus has got some specific prophetic words for Peter 
I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom, and the you there is in the singular. It's not the plural. He's speaking specifically to Peter. So there's something going on with Peter, although I wouldn't take that too far. But there is something specifically going on with Peter. But nothing that can be true of what Jesus is going to do through Peter can be true unless Peter first sees that Jesus is the Christ. And so that's where I'm taking all this is to say the key to this passage is that Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. Peter's hope, in other words, Peter's trust in life, the thing that anchors his soul is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who delivers what our souls most need. He's the one through whom we can be reconciled to God, though each one of us have lived as if we were God's enemies in our own special personal way. He's the one through whom God will one day redeem and, and, and restore the entire creation from bondage to brokenness and injustice and suffering, and he will set all wrongs right and renew his creation to be free from sin and suffering and death and the powers of darkness. Jesus is the one in whom all the promises of God and all the deepest needs of our souls is met. He is the true hope. And whether we can name it or not, all of us are hoping in something. We live our lives with our hope set on something. We live our lives with an unspoken, maybe even unrealized set of expectations that if this were just true, if I just got to this, or if, if, if I could just see this thing realized in my life, or there's this thing out there that, that as long as that's there, everything is okay or everything will be okay. It's the thing or someone that we think will give our lives meaning. And in a place like South, the South Bay, we very often set our hope on things that essentially boil down to some kind of life circumstance. Very often we live our lives with our hope, the, the thing that we think will give our lives meaning in some form of life circumstance, an exciting lifestyle. I'm getting barreled and eating burritos. I'm living the kind of life with my family that I always dreamed of, or I'm seeking that kind of thing. I got the ideal family. We've got the perfect Christmas card. We're in matching white linen shirts out on the cove. No, no shots fired if that's your Christmas card. It's a lovely Christmas card. I probably will have the same Christmas card at some point in my life. In fact, I have had a very similar Christmas card at some points in my life. But we've got this vision of a family that that's the thing that we would live for. Or professional success. Man, when we just close this deal. Or when I just get to that level. Or when I just get this promotion. Or when I just start this business. Or when I just sell the business that I started. And then I'm on easy street from there on out. Or whatever it might be. You name it. So often we set our hope in some sort of life circumstance, often very good life circumstances, things that are morally good life circumstances. Having, an idea, having a, a family that love each other, man, what a beautiful gift from God. But it's a life circumstance, and if the pressures and disappointments of the last couple of years have shown us anything, it's that there's no life circumstance on which we could set our hope that will not eventually be taken away through either time or tragedy. Life circumstances cannot bear the weight of the hope of our souls. And so, uh, so then, uh, as a, as when we realize this, we often turn to some sort of spiritual uh, type of hope. In fact, in the last couple of years, in, in the course of the pandemic, um, interest in spirituality has spiked. There was a, a set of research done by the University of Copenhagen where they found that internet searches for prayer um, absolutely spiked as soon as the pandemic started. There's a renewed interest in spirituality and religion. 
But if our hope in life circumstance lets us down because they're temporary at best, hope in religion and spirituality, even of the spiritual but not religious type, lets us down because the default operating principle of religion is earn it. When our hope is set on a, on a religious type of hope, even the spiritual but not religious type of hope, our hope is now wrapped into this operating principle of earn it. According to tradition, the Buddha's last words were, strive unceasingly. I'm not throwing shade on Buddhism in particular because I think there's an equally strive-oriented version of Christianity that's as dark or maybe even in some cases darker. I'm not throwing shade on anything particular. I'm just pointing out that the operating principle of religion is earn it. And when your hope is set on earn it, earn some sort of spiritual experience, earn some sort of be the right type of person, then you're either going to be a person wrapped up in smug pride because you think you've earned it, you think you're the right type of person, or shame because you know you haven't. It lets us down. But in contrast to hope in life circumstances and hope in religion that says earn it, hope in Jesus says, I have done for you what, I, what you could not have done for yourself. Though you have strayed, though you haven't done what you ought to have done, I have loved you. And I've made a way for you that you could not have made for yourself. I've given you grace, to use the language of the New Testament. And it cannot be taken away because God's presence and God's promise through Jesus are sure and eternal. And while the whole problem is that we couldn't earn our way to him in our sin, in Jesus, God is delighted to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so Jesus' last words were, it is finished. The price has been paid. Paid in full. And so in a world desperate for true hope, in a South Bay desperate for true hope, the church of Jesus is to be a community that confesses the true hope of Jesus, a hope that can't be taken away, a hope that doesn't say earn it, but it is finished. You're loved. We're to be a people who confess the true hope. And now very quickly, three more points. Boom, boom, boom. Gosh, I'm a preacher. Give me a break. Um, we're to be a people who live from a secure identity because a true hope translates to a secure identity. Matthew, in Matthew 16, and 17 to 18, Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, who's just confessed that, that Jesus is the Christ, he says, and now you, Pete, you, Simon, you are Peter. You've confessed that Jesus is the Christ. In Jesus' words, you've confessed that I'm the Christ. And now I tell you, it wasn't flesh and blood that reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. In other words, God has initiated with you in grace and love. And I tell you, you now have a new name. You, knew have a, you now have a new identity. You're no longer Simon, but now you are Peter. And the significance here is that we see that confessing that Jesus is the Christ, setting our hope in Jesus, the true hope, gives us a new identity. Because identity is just how we think the true, our, our story of hope translates to our role to play in that story. So our identity is the personal way that we fit into the story of hope that we've internalized, which is to say that when you have to set your hope on something, it, it commands your identity. And setting your hope in Jesus leads to a new identity from which we now live. And the church is to be a community that lives from a secure identity in the love of God. And so one of the things that's to be true of the church is not just that we confess truth about who Jesus is, but that we live differently out of a secure identity because of it. We actually live as those unconditionally loved by God. We actually live as those who have been given a new name, so to speak. 
who have, been, have had truth declared over us, who know who we are in the love of God. And that's not just a personal thing, although it begins personally for each of us, but our identity, my identity and your identity, is a community project because we learn who we are in community with other people. We can believe true things about who God is and what he declares of us, but we come to internalize it as it comes to bear in a community. In a very important way, my secure true identity and your secure true identity is a community project. I experienced this so powerfully uh, as a college student years and years ago. Far too long of a story to tell now. But um, in a moment of moral failure of my life, I experienced the power of a community to form an identity, a true secure identity in the love of God. And I don't have enough time to get into it, but the story involves my moral failure involves a chicken suit and me telling a lie that almost got a guy deported and it's long and you should ask me about it sometime because it's a wild story. But I failed morally. I told a lie to a boss of mine at the time and it was a significant lie and I was trying to cover my own butt, um, operating out of insecurity, but um, I failed and I got caught and I knew I had blown it. And I just, I had had a meeting with my boss at the time and she rightly shared some harsh words with me. I deserved it. And I walked out and I just, I knew I had blown it. I knew I had sinned. And I knew I had misrepresented Jesus because she knew I was a Christian and she let me know that she, that, uh, she trusted me because she thought I was a good person, but now I had blown it and I had misrepresented Jesus to her. She actually told me this. And I just, I was, I knew I was in my sin. And as, as the providence of God would have it, I walked out the door from where I worked and there was a park across the street and I, was, I walked over to this park just processing with God and there sitting on a park bench was a friend of mine who was a follower of Jesus. And he could tell I was upset and he just asked me what was going on. I told him and he spoke the gospel over me in a way that gave life. He told me I was loved by God He didn't downplay the significance of what I had done, but he spoke my true, secure identity over me. And I I knew in my head that that was true, but hearing it from a brother in Jesus made it alive to me. Our identity is a community project. We're to be those who live from a secure identity and give a secure identity to others in the way that we love each other and speak truth to one another. And we'll close with these last two points. That we're to live live as a safe community and also to be those who live with an unsafe mission. In, um, in verse 18, Jesus says that on this rock, which again we've covered, involves Peter, but definitely involves the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church, my people, my assembly of those who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And this is... Uh, and this is a people that is not like the assembly of the Greek city-state that was exclusive. This is a people who are inclusive, where barriers are broken down, where the dividing lines of socioeconomic status and anything that would divide us in the world are no longer dividing in within the church or ought not be as we live it out faithfully, where all are welcome and included, where those who are marginalized by society are given equal status within the church, It's a new family that live life together, a safe community. A safe community that's not permissive of anything because that's ultimately not actually loving, but a safe community that in truth-telling has a commitment to each other that says, there's nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less. 
It's a safe community. I love the way the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson puts it. He puts it like this. He says, ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of mutual friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a mutual affinity group, but because they've been saved by Jesus and owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they've been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. We're to be a safe community, to live as a safe community. And to say that the church is a people, and to say that we are a new spiritual family, it doesn't diminish the value of commitment to one another or showing up being physically present with one another. In fact, it actually elevates it. See, oftentimes, sometimes when people talk about how the church is not a building or they downplay the, the importance of programs, which I have said very clearly, that's not what the church is. They often do it with a motivation to try to downplay the import, importance of consistency and commitment to being physically present with each other. But if we're going to talk about the church as a people, it actually elevates the importance of being physically present with each other. It actually elevates the importance of showing up for each other because that's what a people is. A family has family rhythms. A spiritual family has spiritual family rhythms where we gather together in certain settings and then we scatter out into our individual callings. But the base of all of it is that we are a safe community. We're a safe community living from a secure identity and confessing a true hope, but we're to live as a safe community. How refreshing would it be if we fully embrace this calling in a place like the South Bay and Southern California in general that tends to be pretty exclusive in its social circles and tends to put a whole lot of value com compared to most places on cool, whatever cool means in your stage of life. How refreshing would it be if we fully embraced the inclusive, welcoming love of God for each other? How refreshing would it be if we really embraced this call and were the most welcoming, loving community that anyone in the South Bay had ever seen? We're to be a safe community. But we're to be a safe community that lives together with an unsafe mission. Safe for each other, but unsafe against the brokenness of the world. Unsafe against the powers of darkness. Matthew 16, 18, and 19, Jesus says that I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And think about the image that Jesus is setting here. Oftentimes, when Christians talk about the church, they talk about it as like a fortress against the big bad world. Like, we gotta, we gotta huddle together. We gotta, we gotta, you know, batten down the hatches and make sure the big bad world doesn't get us. But listen to the image that Jesus is saying. Jesus says, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Gates are a defensive position. And so in this image, the church of Jesus, as Jesus is building it, is charging the gates of hell, charging the powers of injustice and brokenness and wounding against each other, charging the gates of sin, charging the gates of darkness that lays hold of each of our hearts, charging against all the brokenness of the world, and the church wins. Jesus wins in this image. That, that when we embrace our calling together, over time and over the long haul, the church is on an unsafe mission to bring life and redemption to the world. 
It's our shared calling, and it's a shared calling that actually accelerates community. If we want to be the type of church where we really embrace being a people, if we want to be the type of church where we really embrace experiencing the love of God for us through each other, we have to embrace being on mission together, championing each other in our individual callings in the world and coming together to declare truth that bonds may be broken, that life may be released into the South Bay. Because far from being something that distracts from community, mission actually accelerates community. C.S. Lewis talked about this and um, he wrote a chapter in a book called The Four Loves on Friendship. And one of the things that he observed about friendship is that the most powerful types of friendships exist for a shared mission together. He said this, and he's super salty. So, you know, take his words as his words, not mine. But he says, those who simply want friends can never make any. Real salty. Why are you going there, CS? Okay. Those who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. What he's saying is real community, deep friendships, comes from going somewhere together, comes from sharing a mission together. When we share a mission together, it doesn't distract from community, it accelerates community. Our mission is not just something that we're to do because it's the right thing to do, it's something that we do because it draws us to love each other in Jesus' name more deeply. And so we are a people. We are a people who confess a true hope. We're a people who live from a secure identity. We're a people who live as a safe community and a people who live for an unsafe mission. And in the process, we redeem broken experiences of church and we bring life and redemption to the world around us. But it begins with a personal commitment of our role to play as the people. And so as we close here, and we embrace the truth that the church is not just a place where, and it's not just programs that, the church is a people who. And as we look forward to learning together what that looks like over the next couple of, couple of months, the question before us individually is, how not only can we collectively be all that Jesus intends the church to be, but what is my role to play? What does it look like for me to participate in the people who? How has God called me to be a part of that people? And to press further into what he intends for us as we press further into what he intends for us as individuals. Because the church is people and we are the people together. So right now we're going to have some time of reflection. Some time to do some business with God. And as we close, as you feel comfortable, you can come forward and take communion if you're a follower of Jesus to remember that Jesus is the one who has brought you into his family. Saved you individually, yes. But in the process of saving you individually, brought you adopted into a new family, now with new relationships with brothers and sisters. And he did this, not by anything we earned, not by anything we deserved, but because he loved us in his grace. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And when we take the elements, we remember the true story of who God is and what he's done for us and therefore who we are in him. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite us to do some business with God. 
And as you feel comfortable, come up and, and celebrate the elements together. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. And we're so grateful for your grace and everything that you are for us in Jesus. Grateful that the church is a people because you've saved us. You've loved us. And in loving us, you draw us and knit us together to be yours. I pray, God, that you'd give us such a vision, not only of how much you love us and have saved us, but how beautiful it is that you're saving a people. You're redeeming relationships, and as we learn more what it looks like to love you, we learn what it looks like to love people. And in loving people, we learn more about what your love is like. I pray, God, that you would, uh, you would give us just such an excitement over being a part of your people. The church is a people who, and you've given us a true hope to confess. You've given us a secure identity to live from. You've brought us into a community that, if we make it safe, will be a safe community. And you've given us an unsafe mission to live for. Would you teach us what that looks like, we pray. Thank you. All of it comes from Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. That you did for us what we could not have done for ourselves. And as we celebrate communion, we remember that truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Feel free to take communion whenever you feel comfortable.